This was Jesus' fourth statement from the cross. We're in this series, Seven Words from the Cross, and in the dying moments of Jesus' life, there are seven statements, there are seven words. And we've been talking about that. We need to talk about this one. Uh, there was uh, a gentleman in the 930 service, a song between services, and this is what he said to me. He said, I've always wondered, why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus in those moments ask the question, God, why have you forsaken me? And we need to talk about that, and we're going to do that. And when we get to the end of the talk, you're going to understand this so much better. I want to remind you, and you know this, that next Sunday is Easter Sunday. It's going to be an incredible day here. We're believing God. It's going to be a wonderful time. The music is going to be powerful. I've already been working on the message for next Sunday, and I just want to encourage you to get people here. Uh, There's going to be three different services. Instead of doing two 70 to 75-minute services, we're going to do three 60-minute services. We've got a lot of invitation cards. You've got one or two in your bulletin, and then there's a lot out at the information table. Take this, put it in the hand of somebody, and take it a step further and just say, hey, to help you to be more comfortable, this is the service because there's three options that I'm going to be at. And and just say, hey, whoever you're bringing, your neighbors, your coworkers, uh, your family members, your friends, whoever it is, just maybe to make it easier for them, you just meet them in the lobby, and then they can sit with you in the service. And we're believing God to do great things. I know the direction of this service. I know where we're headed with the music and with the message. And you will be so glad if you bring somebody here uh, with you next Sunday. So keep those times in mind, uh, 8.45 to 9.45, the first service, second service, 10 to 11. And then the third and final service is going to be uh, from 11.15 to 12.15. So take those cards Uh, get people to join you next week. Now, I want to go back, and I want to take you back to our message series uh, that we've been dealing with, Seven Words from the Cross. Now, Jesus is on the cross, we're told, for six hours. They nailed him to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning, and by 3 that afternoon, Jesus was dead. Now, during those six hours, we know, because we've been talking about it, Jesus made seven profound statements, all of which have implications for your life and for mine. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. The first three statements he makes in the first three hours, and of those first three statements, in all of them, he is actually uh, speaking. He's involving other people, and I want to just take you back for just reminder's sake to what we've looked at so far in this series, uh, three passages or verses. I want you to look at the first one. This is from week one, the first statement Jesus gave from the cross when he said, Jesus said, Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, I want you to keep that up, guys, if you will, please, for just a moment. See that word, Father? I don't know if you noticed it or not. We're going to talk about it. When Jesus cries out, and you're going to see it here in just a moment, he does not cry out, Father. He says, God. And, and there's a lot of theologians and scholars believe that there's a reason, and we're going to touch on that. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And in week one from this first statement, we talked about forgiveness. It was in week two, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about assurance, how that we need to have assurance. If you were not here that Sunday, I encourage you to go online because everybody ought to know if they pray to receive Christ, they need to have assurance that they're going to heaven when they die. And then this is what Jesus said. Look at this next verse. This was from week two or the second statement. Jesus looked at that second criminal on the cross and he said, I assure you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. At the moment that you close your eyes, I want you to have assurance. You're going to be. He didn't have a chance to go through discipleship and discipleship is important. He did not have a chance to be baptized in water. 
And that's important, but he, uh, he did not have that chance. He did not go through a membership or connection class. It's a good thing to do, but he didn't have that chance. And Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I'm giving you this assurance. And so we talked about assurance in week two. And then last week, we talked about love. When Jesus had been abandoned by so many, and he looked through all the faces, the angry mob, the Roman soldiers, everybody that was, uh, you know, uh, scoffing at him and, and jeering him, and Jesus saw the face of his uh, family member, the family member they loved most, his mom and his best friend, and look at what Jesus said. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, talking about the disciple John, and to the other disciple, to John, he says, here is your mother, take care of my mom. Now, in the six hours that Jesus is on the cross, the first three statements involve other people. But now it starts to turn a little bit. It was at noon on this particular day, on Jesus' crucifixion day, that we read in the scriptures that the sky grows strikingly dark. Now, scholars and theologians um, speculate as to what that could have been because the Bible does not define. We can only speculate. We cannot declare with absolute certainty. But some have said it was just dark, dark clouds that must have rolled in at noon. Others have said it was a ferocious storm. Others have suggested that could have potentially been an eclipse, and that's what caused this utter darkness to cover the face of the earth. Well, this should have been, as you well know, during this time around noon, should have been the brightest part of the day. But it was during this covering of darkness that Jesus utters this fourth statement. And we're going to see it in just a moment from a couple of verses. Among those seven statements, this is his loudest. We're told that this is the loudest and the most agonizing of all statements that Jesus ever made. Of the seven, this is the loudest and most agonizing. And the reason that they uh, feel this, uh, many scholars, again, theologians do, is because in their writings, they suggest that the language, the original language that is used, lends itself to this reality that of the seven statements, Jesus really raised his voice. He yelled out, he screamed out these words that we are about to see. And I want you to look at him on the screen. This is out of Matthew 27. At noon, darkness, we mentioned that. Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? God, as some translation says, God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, you think about that. Why would Jesus make a statement? My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Max Lucado has remarked, I remember this while I was working on this talk. It's a book that I read uh, some time ago. I do not even remember the name of the book. But in that particular book, Max Lucado raised the question, well, why did Jesus scream out this statement? And then his response to his own question was this, so that we would not have to. Why did Jesus yell out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why would God do that? And Lucado would write, and he's probably correct, so that we would not have to. Jesus became our substitute. The Apostle John has written, and this is not on the screen, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. 
I want you to think about what is playing out at the cross in these moments. Keep in mind that when Jesus, for these six hours, I want you to hear this now, when Jesus is on the cross for these six hours, you need to realize the sense of utter abandonment that he is already feeling. One of the 12, think about this, one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, has already betrayed him. You think about all of the followers that he had, that he ministered to, and that he touched, and that he healed, and that he taught, and none of them are there. But as I mentioned to you last week, don't be too harsh with them, because even among Jesus' own disciples, they too have fled. The only disciple that is in close proximity to the cross is the disciple John, one of the twelve, and it's why Jesus loved. He had this close relationship, this close affinity with John. He said, John, take care of my mom. Mom, this is your son from this point forward. So Jesus is already feeling this sense because you have to remember, Jesus is in his incarnational life. By incarnational life, I mean his life, that 33 years or so that he's on the earth. In that setting, he is fully God. He's still divine, but he is fully human. He is tied into all of our human emotions. Jesus, for the first time ever, knows what it is to be hungry and to be thirsty and to need rest and sleep because he is fully God, but yet he is fully human. And in these moments, he has not only felt abandoned by his followers, by his own disciples, but now he feels abandoned by God. And we need to talk about this. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said. John, you heard earlier, said Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only ours, the sins of the whole world. Later in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says, For God made Christ, who, listen to this now, who never sinned, Christ who never sinned, to become the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to announce it ahead of time so that you know where I'm going. Between this moment and the end of this talk, what I want to do is I want to raise two questions. And they're simple questions, but we're going to, the response to them is, is not so simple. But the two questions I want us to raise is this. What do we need to know in regards to this fourth statement? And you're going to see these things play out. What is it that we need to know? That is tied into what we've already looked at. And then what do we need to do? That's the second question. How do we need to react? How do we need to respond to that? What do we need to know? And then simply, what do we need to do? And I want you to be sure you get this down. I see our Teen Challenge girls there. They've got their... By the way, would you make our Teen Challenge girls welcome? We always love having them. So if you have a notebook like they do, you can use that or your phone or your tablet. But what is it that we need to know? Well, the first thing that we need to know is we need to know, be sure you get this, we need to know that God is holy. God is holy. Now, what does that mean? I want you to look at a verse with me, and before they put it up on the screen, I want you to think about this. The writer of the Revelation, as he receives what is a revelation, the Apostle John, it's, it's like he is saying, I'm not only going to say this once, but lest you miss it, I'm going to say it not once, not twice, but I'm going to say it three times. This is Revelation 4 and verse 8, and look at what he says. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. Holy, holy, God is holy, and we need to know that. We need to know it because it ties into what is playing out in this fourth statement that Jesus made from the cross. Now, holy can sound like a mighty intimidating word. It is so righteous. It is so royal. It is so decreed that that very sense of the word holy can be a little, again, intimidating. 
But to help us to better understand it, what does it mean when we see in the Bible that God is holy? Let me tell you what it means. It means this, that God is 100% pure, that God is 100% perfect, that he is sinless, that he is innocent, that he is incorrupt, that he is guilty, uh, guiltless. In fact, listen, friends, God is not only so perfect, you need to hear this, it's so important, I know that it would be easy to be thinking about where you're going for lunch or what you've got to do. And I know so many of you are so excited about work or school in the morning. You're already thinking about that. But I want you to just push that aside because you need to hear this. God is not only so holy that he cannot and will not sin. God is so holy and so righteous that God cannot even look at sin and evil. Now, how do we know that? I want you to look at this next verse. This is out of the Old Testament. Look at this verse right here. Look at what it says concerning God and his holiness. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Your eyes are too pure. You can't even look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. You want to know how holy God is? God is so holy, friends, that God cannot even look on evil. God cannot even look on sin. That is how perfect That is how righteous, that is how pure, that is how innocent, that is how sinless that God really is. Now, having considered that, I want you to now, because this is going to make sense, this is going to click for you, because many of you are like the guy I talked to between services. You've wondered, why would God, why would Jesus say to God from the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to take what we just saw, and I want you to fast forward to the cross And I want you to consider this, and you've got to get this. This is going to make sense to you. This is going to help you next time you read this or when you get ready to explain it to somebody else. I want you to understand that every form of sin and darkness and evil has been placed upon Jesus in this moment, every bit of it. You ever online and and you read about a, a story that is horrific, that is horrible, that is so, I mean, just so cruel, so wrong, so heinous, so hideous. You hear about something in the news and you just think, I can't even believe that somebody would be, you know, that, that depraved, that dark, that evil, that they would even do. And this is, this is what I want you to hear. Every bit of that, every bit of that, and every sin that has ever been committed or will be committed, and all of your sins and all of my sins are placed upon Jesus in that moment. And because God is so holy and God is so righteous, because he is so righteous, he cannot even look on evil. And in that moment, in that moment, God himself has to turn his head away from his own son. He's so holy, he can't even look on evil. He can't even take in all that sin that has been laid upon Jesus. And Jesus already feeling the abandonment of his followers and his disciples and and the betrayal. He looks around. He sees his mom and maybe five to seven of her friends. He sees the disciple, but everybody else has left him. And in this moment, when his own father has to turn his head because he can't look on evil, he's just that holy, Jesus Scholars say he, he screams out, he yells out from the cross, and he doesn't say, notice this, uh, other places, Father, we saw it in the very first statement, Father, forgive them, for they do, do not know what they are doing. Jesus does not call out Father. He says, not Father, but my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And scholars will say, that could it be that in that moment he is already feeling such a separation that he does not refer to him as now his father, but his God? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And in those moments when the way of the whole world is placed upon him, 
God has to turn his head because his eyes are too pure to look on evil. And Jesus shouts, why God? Why? Because God is holy. The second thing that we need to know, and this is so important, firstly, that God is holy, but secondly, it ties into this, is that sin is destructive. Sin is destructive. Sin does a lot of horrific things, but there's two things I want to address right here on this second thought, and that is a couple of things that sin does. Sin separates, and it stresses. It causes a stress in our life. Sin separates us from God. That is not how God wants it to be so. But that's simply the way it, it, and I'll explain. Look at this verse right here. This is Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 2 said, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Remember what we said, God's eyes are so pure to look on evil. He cannot look on evil. You see, this is what sin does. Sin creates conflict and distance between God and us. And God does not want that. God does not, listen, friends, this is for somebody here this morning, God does not want to be separated from you. God loves you. In fact, do you want to know why you're in this world? Not just because, you know, the the creation that set in motion with your mom and your dad. Why you're here in this world is because God made you to love you. God made you to love you. God made, he didn't need to do that. God was a complete in and of himself. But God wanted to find people that he could love. He created you to love you. And God created you to be in relationship with himself. He didn't need it for his existence. He just wanted it. He wanted to love you and he wanted you to be in relationship with him. But here's the problem. When we sin, our sin separates us from God. It injures the relationship. Does that mean that God has stopped loving us? Absolutely not. You could never do anything that would make God love you any more than God loves you right now. And you could never do anything that would cause God to stop loving you. God's love for you is always going to be extravagant and unconditional. God loves you. Why? Because you're lovable? Because I love, I'm lovable? No. God loves us because God is love. It doesn't say that God has love. God is love. He is the embodiment of love. And your sin is not going to cause God to stop loving you. But here's what happens. It is an indicator that we love our sin more than we're loving God at that time. And that creates a fracture in the relationship. It hurts the relationship. So sin is destructive. It's destructive in the fact that it separates us from the God that wants to love us and be in relationship with us. But sin also causes us stress. And you have felt this in your life. You have felt that. It weighted down. Maybe it's a sense of guilt or shame or regret. I can't believe I did that. Why did I do that? I wish I'd never done that. And just uh, the weightiness of that. Sin will stress you out. It will stress me out. A heaviness that we don't have to carry around. Look at this verse up on the screen. This is just one verse that speaks to this. My guilt has overwhelmed me. Look at this. My guilt or my sin has overwhelmed me. Read the rest of it with me. Like a burden too heavy to bear. My guilt, my sin has overwhelmed me. It is so heavy. I'm carrying around this guilt. I'm carrying around this shame. I'm carrying around this regret. And we were not designed to do that, friends. God did not design us in that way. God never intended for us to carry that. We were designed to to be in relationship with God, not in conflict with God. But our sin is destructive. So the first thing that we need to know is that God is holy. Second thing, that sin is destructive. Third thing is that salvation is costly. Salvation is costly. 
can put my hands up here so I can see you. How many of you are with me? You're with me? Wave at me so I know you're right dialed in. You need to hear this. These are things that are so important for us to know. God is holy. Sin is destructive. Salvation is costly. I want you to hear me on this. You and I know this. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot. And furthermore, none of us deserves it. None of us deserves salvation. I don't deserve it. Do you deserve it? I doubt it. I mean, the reality is I know what I deserve. I know what Jeffrey Scott Sellers deserves. What I deserve is not salvation. You know what I deserve? Damnation. I know what I deserve, not salvation. I deserve annihilation. But because of the grace and mercy of God, he has extended to you and to me salvation. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. But God gives it to us, and he gives it to us. Listen now, this is important. God gives us salvation as a free gift, but as a free gift, we cannot fail to acknowledge that somebody had to pay for the gift. Somebody had to, it's free to us, but somebody had to pay for it, and that somebody is Jesus. I want you to look at this next verse. Take a look at it on the screen. This is Paul in Romans, and he said this, God sent Christ to be our sacrifice Christ offered his what? What did he offer? His life's blood so that by faith we could come to God. So that we could come to God. Now, I want to tell you a little story. Some of you maybe have heard this before. I don't know if I've shared it here. If I have, it's been some time ago. I shared this story with my cousin who I'm very close to this week. And he said, I've never heard that story before. But I want to tell you the story because it's going to illustrate a point that I'm going to make right after that. A number of years ago, this has been several years ago, I was on a flight that was leaving Florida, and I was flying to California. On this particular flight, my uncle, who's a missionary, was living in Thailand. He lived in Thailand about 25 years, and so I rarely had the opportunity to really see. I mean, we could talk or, you know, communicate, but to really have time to sit and to talk. And so we were going to be on this flight together, and I was very, very excited about this. So the flight is boarding, and, and uh, I walk into the plane, and some of you know this. You've heard me mention that uh, because my stepdad was a long-term employee, 30-something years, I think he spent with Delta Airlines before he retired, one of the privileges I have as a dependent is that if there is a first-class, an empty first-class seat, and it doesn't happen as much anymore, it used to happen quite often, that if there's an available first-class seat, then, then I could get as a dependent bumped up to the first class seat. And it just so happened. It was a great flight for this to happen on because it was a long flight, as you well know, from Florida to California. So I've got a first class seat. And listen, I don't mind telling you, I was loving my first class seat. I, I was, how many of you know this? You get treated a little bit different in first class. How many of you know, wave at me like this? You, you, uh, so I'm enjoying this seat. I'm just sort of, I'm ready. And what I'm loving about it is... You know, not only is there an available seat for me, but right next to me, right next to my seat is another big seat. And, you know, I'm, I'm toward the end of those boarding the plane. So I keep saying to myself, man, I hope this stays empty. Because if it stays empty, my uncle who's riding in coach, who I really want to talk to, I love first class, but I love my uncle more, and I'd like to talk to him. So I hope this seat stays available and nobody sits in it because I'm going to find one of these nice flight attendants, and I'm going to explain to her and ask if, you know, maybe she'd consider letting him move up there so we could talk, spend time together going to California. So I've got this all plotted out in my mind. 
How many of you think it's a great idea so far? How many of you think this is a great idea? I'm loving it. This is going to work. It's empty. It's empty. It's empty. Hey, nobody, I don't see anybody else getting on the plane. And just before, just before the door shuts, somebody walks onto the plane. And guess where they walk? I see they're in a little bit of a hurry, sharp-looking dress, impressive-looking individual. And guess what seat they walk to? They walk right next to me, and they sit down in that first-class seat. They say hello. I say hello. We have a little bit of small talk. And, you know, we're still on the plane. The door's not quite shut yet. And so I, I say, say to him, I said, hey, uh, you traveling to California? Yeah, nice, nice guy. And, and I said, you must have some work going on in California. He said, yeah, I'm, I've got some work I'm going to California to do. Nice, pleasant. And, um, and I mention all that because I'm about to tell you who this person was, and I didn't recognize him. Now, a lot of you younger folks are not going to know this guy, but some of you that have been around a little while, you have watched in the past L.A. Law. How many of you have know the program? It used to be on years ago. L.A. Law, wave your hand at me if you know L.A. Law. All right, L.A. Law, one of the leading characters on L.A. Law was Corbin Burnson. How many of you remember who Corbin Burnson is? You know, and that was the guy that sat down beside me. And so he's seated beside me, and regrettably, I don't watch L.A. Law. I don't know who he is. So I'm making this small talk with him, and he's, again, pleasant, and you're going to work. Yeah, I found out later, he's, yeah, going to film a movie. And, uh, you know, uh, so I'm happy. But then I've got this decision. I, I love this seat, but I love my uncle more. So just before the flight took off, I just reached over. I got the briefcase that I had, and I said to this guy, I'm going to the back. That's all I had time to say. I'm going to the back. And I, I went and sat in the back, which was wide open by my uncle, so that we could talk. On this flight, we just get up, we level out, and there are two or three flight attendants come back, and, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm talking to my uncle. You gave up your first class. I know. I wanted to talk with my uncle. But don't you know who you were seated next to? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and they're giddy. One of them has his ticket. I got his ticket. She says, I got his ticket. You were seated right next to Corbin B- Burnson. You were right next to him. And, and, and then she stopped and said, oh, by the way, he wants to know if he did something to offend you. <laughs> and then I'm loving that. And then I'm thinking, what a nice, considerate guy, thoughtful guy. And, and, and then it made me want to watch L.A. Law for the first time. <laughs> now, here's why I don't want to mention. Let's use our imagination. Let's, let's say that you purchased for me a first-class round-trip ticket to Hawaii. God speaks to you about that. You be sure you listen, all right? So... But kidding aside, I'm using it for analogy. Let's say you do that. Now, and and you give that to me as a gift. First class, round trip ticket to Hawaii. You give that to me. It's a gift. And it's free to me. I didn't pay anything. All I've got to do is receive the ticket. Although it is free to me. Listen now. Although it is free to me, it costs somebody. It costs you. Here's what I want to say. Jesus has already purchased our ticket to heaven. It is free to us because salvation is free. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. It is a free gift. Jesus has already purchased our ticket to heaven, and it was very expensive because Jesus paid for that ticket with blood. He paid for that ticket with blood. Salvation is costly. Look at this verse on the screen. Galatians 3.13 says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, 
He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. So, what do we need to know? We need to know, all of us need to know, that God is holy, that sin is destructive, and that salvation is costly. Now, what do we need to do? All right, I want to give you three things here, and then we're going to be done. Three things here, and it won't take me long. What do we need to do? How do we need to respond to that? How do we need to react to that? This is what we need to do. Number one, get right with God. We need to get right with God. If you're not right with God, you need to do that. Friends, there's no other way to get into heaven than to get right with God. Jesus offers to you and to me a free gift. It's already been paid for with blood, but you have to make a decision to receive it. You see, Jesus can offer you a ticket to heaven, and he can say, it's free. I've already paid for it with blood, but it's not going to be actuated until you receive it. You've got to get right with God. And the Bible repeatedly tells us this again and again, that we need to turn from our sin and we need to turn to Jesus, trusting in Jesus to save us. In fact, look at this verse up on the screen. This is Romans, out of Romans 3. This is what it says. Look at it with me. We're made right. That's what we're talking about. We need to get right with God. How are we made right with God? We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. And I love this next part, no matter who we are. Do you know that Jesus sees us all the same? He does. Do you know that we're all saved the same way? Jesus does not play favorites. We all have equal value to Jesus. He looks at us. It doesn't matter what our background is. It doesn't matter what our race or our skin color is. It does not matter what our previous religion was. It does not matter. None of those things matter. He loves us equally. He wants a relationship with us equally. He paid the same price for all of our salvation. And go back to that verse, guys, if you will, for just a moment. And it says, look at this last part. And it's available to everyone who believes, no matter who we are. It does not matter who we are or what we have done. We all come to Jesus the same way. It said we've got to place our faith in Jesus. We have to get right with God. Now, there are some of you here, and I want you to really listen to this. This is really important. And this is going to create some momentary discomfort, but then I'm going to give you some good news. So I know what this is going to create but then I want you to listen to the rest of what I'm going to say to you. Some of you are seated here today and you're saying, you know what, Jeff, I, I believe in what you're saying right now. I, do be- I believe that God is holy. I do believe that sin is destroyed. I do believe that Jesus paid the price, that salvation was costly. I do believe that. I acquiesce with you. It's not that you do not believe those things, but you're having trouble believing it for you because there are many of you that are seated in this theater right now There's something about you that nobody knows but you. And you felt a tremendous amount of shame and regret. You maybe have been carrying that around for months or maybe even years. And you're like, nobody knows. And I would be horrified if anybody knew. And you've got this secret area of your life, and you really wonder, well, how, how does that play out? I mean, is, is that just, and here's the good news. I, I know that creates some discomfort to talk about it because it brings back to the surface something that you've been dealing with. But here's, here's the thing you need to hear. Whatever that secret sin is, whatever that sin is that you would be horrified if anybody other than you knew about it, this is the good news I want to tell you. Jesus has paid for that sin too. He's paid for that sin too. And you can experience grace and forgiveness and you can get right with God. 
So there's nothing that's going to exclude you from the love of God. There's nothing. Remember what Paul said? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing's going to prevent Jesus from offering salvation to you. So what do we do? We've got to get right with God. Secondly, we need to remember how Jesus suffered because of our sin. We need to remember. That's the second thing that we need to do. First thing we need to do is we need to make sure we're right with God. Secondly, we need to make sure that we remember how Jesus suffered because of the sins you committed and the sins I've committed. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment. Throughout your lifetime and mine, we're going to discover that we're going to return again and again to the same intersection. You've been there before. You've been there many times already. In the remainder of your lifetime, you're going to come to this intersection again and again. It's going to be like deja vu. You're going to come back to this intersection again and again. And this intersection always has two paths. Always that same intersection. It's always got two paths. One path, you with me? Wave at me if you're with me. One path is the path that is the path of obedience. That is God's way. The other path that we could choose is the path of opposition or rebellion. And that is our way. So we're going to come to this intersection again and again, and we're going to have two paths. We can either go God's way, the way of obedience, or our way, the way of opposition and rebellion. Now, any of you remember these comic strip characters, Frank and Ernest? Have any of you ever seen Frank and Ernest stuff? This is one, and I saw it a number of years ago, but I wanted to mention it today because it sort of ties into what we're talking about. Frank and Ernest, these two uh, goofy characters, are standing before a priest. And this is what Frank asked. Frank asked the priest, he said, how come opportunity knocks once? Opportunity knocks once. He said, how come that is? But temptation beats at my door every single day. You ever felt that way before? Opportunity knocks once, but temptation is banging on the door every single day. I need to remember in those moments what Jesus suffered because of me. And, you to do. and I think it helps us. When we're at that intersection, we can say, I can go obedience or I can go opposition. I can go God's way or I can go my way. I can go the way of blessing or I can go the way of rebellion. I think it's important for us to remember how much Jesus really suffered for us. I'm going to read something about that in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to look at these two fir- uh, verses out of 1 Peter. Look at this, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He didn't buy it with money. It's what we've been talking about. How did he purchase it? It was the precious, there it is, blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. A number of years ago, I picked up a book by Lee Strobel. He's written The Case for Christ, The Case for Easter. The Case for Christ is out. I mentioned that recently. It's in one of the theaters here playing. I would encourage you to see it. But in this particular book, uh, Strobel wrote it was a book called God's Outrageous Claims, and in it he quotes a doctor. And I want because I'm saying to you and to me that we need to remember the suffering, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And this he quotes uh, a physician. Physician's name is Dr. C. Truman Davis, who analyzed the practice of Roman beatings during the first century, during this time when Jesus was beaten. His conclusion was that Jesus had been mercilessly whipped into the very uh, edge of death. And we talked about that recently. That Most people would not even have survived the scourging and the flogging that Jesus went through. And that Jesus was already dying by the time he was nailed to the cross. Now, this is what 
uh, Dr. Davis said. He said, Jesus was tied to a post and beaten at least 39 times and probably more with a whip that had jagged bones and balls of lead woven into it. Again and again, the whip was brought down with full force on Jesus' bare shoulders, backs, and his legs. The doctor said at first the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels and the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produced large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. You want to know how much Jesus suffered for us? That much. And I need to remember that, and you need to remember that. We need to make sure we're right with God. And we need to make sure that when we come to that intersection, and you have and you will many times in the future, that before you make a decision, before you turn this way or this way, you, you acknowledge what Jesus did for you, the suffering that he went through on your behalf. And then the last thing I want to give you that we need to do is we need to tell others what Jesus did so that they will not be lost. We need to tell other people what Jesus did so that they are not going to be lost. How many of you would agree Jesus loves the whole world? Doesn't matter who, doesn't matter what. I've said this so many times before. Doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, how long they've done it, who they've done it with. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves the whole world. It is God's will that the whole world would be saved. God is not willing, the Bible says, that anybody would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And this message of love and grace and forgiveness is for everybody. Jesus did not make it exclusive for any one group. When Jesus died, he died for the whole world. And we need to be sure that we're telling others what Jesus did. And I wonder why we're so hesitant. I think about this as the most easy, convenient culture in all the world to tell other people about the good news of Jesus, his grace, his love, his sacrifice, his forgiveness. But we're the most reluctant probably in all the world. Do you know what people scattered, our brothers and sisters who are alive in other parts of the world today, they tell other people about Jesus, knowing that if it is discovered by the wrong people, that they're either going to be put in prison for years or they're going to become a martyr because they live in a country where they can't openly share their faith. And they do it anyhow. And then we in America, we, we find it so difficult to do that when the worst thing that could happen to us is for somebody to just say, no thanks, not interested. You think about that. Here's another thing I'd like for you to think about before we're done. Think about, when, and wouldn't this be wonderful, if you knew the cure for cancer? Or if you knew the cure for ALS or dementia or Alzheimer's or diabetes? Think about it. Think about it. If you knew the cure for cancer, there's a wonderful lady that attends our church. She's newer to our church. Uh, her and her husband have not been coming here that long. And I started noticing she had put on her card a prayer request. I saw the time when she wrote, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. And then a week or two ago, I saw that she had written on there, because I look at those cards each Sunday afternoon, where she wrote, cancer surgery scheduled for April 10th, which is tomorrow. I called her on the phone. She's a wonderful lady. Her attitude is, is amazing. In, in fact, her attitude, and it's a very serious surgery, cancer surgery, that will happen. It's a four-hour surgery that they'll begin at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, and it will end sometime around noon. 
And I talked with her, and I actually went and saw her and her husband, and I prayed with her, and this was my prayer. I knew I was prompted by God. This is what I needed to go and do and share with her. And I prayed with her, and I said, here's what I'm praying for you. I am praying for you with this very serious surgery that that God's going to cause the surgery to go incredibly well, that God's going to be with that surgeon, and that surgery is going to go incredibly well. I'm going to pray because they can't really diagnose what stage she's at until they do the surgery. I'm going to pray for the best possible outcome, and then I'm going to pray that God's going to give you a very rapid recovery. I wish that I could have met with her and said, in addition to that, I want you to know I know the cure for cancer, but I don't, nor do you. I wish I knew the cure, don't you, for all these diseases, but we don't. But this is what I want you to think about before we're done. We do, you do, I do. We all know the cure for a sin-sit soul. And the cure is Jesus. It's his grace. It's his love. It's his forgiveness. And we've got that. And friends, why would we hold back from telling other people? Why would we shy away when the worst possible thing that could happen is for somebody to say no thanks, not interested, no way, no how? That's a whole lot less invasive than sharing our faith and knowing that it may cost us our life. Here's what I want want to say to you as we wrap up. I want you to do everything that you can to get people to come to Easter Sunday with you. I know I mentioned this. I know where we're going with the music. I know where we're going with the message. I would tell you where we're going with the message, but I just gave you a message, and I don't think you want to sit around for me to give that message a week ahead of time. So I just know where we're going, and the people that you bring with you, they're going to learn that it's not too late for them to be saved, nor nor have they gone too far, but what God is able to save them. And I want you to listen. I want to say it this way. Don't come to Easter service alone. Bring somebody with you. Go ahead this afternoon, right after the service, write down their names and start praying for them and then invite them. Invite them to meet you in the lobby, as I mentioned, and then sit with you. And then here's what I believe. This is what I know, that God's going to do his part because God doesn't want anybody to be lost. And God's going to send his spirit. And even while they're sitting in one of these seats next Sunday, the Bible says nobody can come to God unless the spirit draws them. And God's spirit's going to be dealing with their heart. So here's what's going to happen. God, I promise you, is going to do his part. But we've got to do ours, and we've got to get them here. And then we do our part. God will definitely do his part. And then the decision is going to rest in their lap as to whether they say yes or no. And that will be completely up to them. But you got them here, and God sent his spirit to deal with their heart. And then we're going to see what God would do. How many of you know that with God all things are possible? And your family members and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, I promise you, it's not too late for them. It's not yet. And they haven't gone too far. You do everything that you can to get them here. And we're going to pray, and we're going to believe, and we're going to see what God will do. You stand with me for a closing prayer. God, we thank you for this day. And we know that even in this service, there are people who they need to get right with you. God, you are holy. We do know that sin is so destructive. It separates us. It causes all this stress and anxiety and heaviness in our life. But we know that you paid the price. Jesus, you bought our ticket to heaven and you paid for it with blood. If you're here today and you'd say, you know what, Jeff, I'm not right with God. I'm not right with God. You may be one of those people that you've just said, I've wondered, could God really forgive me for what I've done? Could God really forgive me? 
I've been carrying this secret around for years, for months. Can God really forgive me? Can God really cleanse me? Can God really help me? And yes, he can. If you're here today and you'd say, you know what, I need to get right with God. I want to know my sins are forgiven. I want to know I'm ready for heaven. While nobody else is looking around, would you just lift your hands, lift it straight up in the air, and I want to pray for you right there where you're standing. Thank you so very, very much. I see several hands across this theater. You can go ahead and put them down. Thank you. Would you pray this prayer? Those of you that raised your hand, you just pray. You don't even have to pray it out loud. You can pray it in your mind and your heart right after me. Dear God in heaven, I know that you're holy. I know that you made me to love me and to be in relationship with me, but I've allowed my sin to separate me from you. It's hurt our relationship, God. I know you don't want that, and I see that I don't want that. So I just pray right now that you would help me to get right with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross and all of my sin was put upon you and that with your blood you bought my ticket to heaven. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you. I need your help. I've got a lot to learn, but I know that you will help me and I know that you will teach me. And then, God, for all the rest of us, we just, we just thank you so much now, God, that you're going to help us to do everything that we can to get our loved ones and our friends, our neighbors and our coworkers here next week. And we pray seven days ahead of time that you would just so powerfully invade their lives that they would open up their heart and receive your son Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. We ask these things in your name. Everybody said, I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. Happy Palm Sunday. I'll see you next Sunday, Easter Sunday.